We continue in our sermon series. It is the Jesus series. Now, on Friday afternoon, I was getting excited for the weekend because I had Boo at the zoo. Um, I was going to get together with a dear friend Sunday afternoon for hamburgers. And I was thinking, you know, I've got a seminary paper, but like otherwise, it's going to be a pretty relaxed weekend. Then my father calls me, and he says, David, uh, you're a wonderful son. I say, thank you. I, I, I agree. I'm going I'm to go ahead and, and affirm that. And he says, so you're going to be preaching on Sunday because I just got done with my doctor's appointment. And the, the good news is, is my voice is getting back overall a bit. But they did say I have acid reflux. They've put me on a little bit different of a regimen. And they've said I can't do my loud preaching voice this weekend. So congratulations, son, associate pastor. I love you. You're so great. Again, I mean, I, I don't disagree. Uh, <laughs> but here we are. So I, I, I guess... Uh, not only are we going to be calling this message consistent in any context, I guess that's my challenge today with a couple hours notice, but we've been looking, I'll explain that, uh, we've been looking through the Gospel of Mark. It's been really exciting to be able to go through and see different attributes of Jesus. It's been really cool to be able to say, wow, Jesus faces a lot of the same challenges that I do. Only unlike me, when I'm kind of a knucklehead and I do whatever I want, Jesus is Jesus, and he continues to show compassion and to ask questions and to extend kindness. And so what we have a chance to do is each time we open up various chapters of Mark, there's all sorts of different ways you can study the Scripture. One of the ways we're doing, you're seeing we're doing a whole reading of a whole chapter, and then you're seeing we're saying, who is Jesus? What do we learn about, about him? So we've seen times where we see he's an authority. We have times where we see he really understands his identity. And then we say, okay, so what do we get out of that? What's the point of that? Well, we are people who so often we can want to imitate the world. We can look at the world. Uh, I'm guilty of this, right? No movie references this whole uh, sermon, I promise. No movie references. Do you think I can do it? I don't know. We'll see. Um, okay, because oftentimes we look at the world and we say, hey, you know what? Like, I love Jesus, but if I'm just more like everything else, people get me a little more, and then I'll kind of work Jesus in where he goes. And like, that'll be fine. Now, that's not really what it means to follow Jesus. Following Jesus means following Jesus. It doesn't mean like, I just try to be so culturally relevant with all these other things, and maybe when I have a moment at, from the hours of like, 10 to 11.05 on a Sunday, maybe I'll have that be my Jesus window, but I'm going to check my email too, and right, like that whole thing. That's all of us can be in that kind of an opportunity where we say, wow, I'm just kind of just fitting Jesus in rather than following him. When we learn from Jesus, we can say he has actions, he has practices, he has mindset that not only can I say thank you for that existing, not only can I say I can learn from that, but I can also try to be more like that and say, wow, I want to be a little bit more like Jesus in my life. Because here's a problem. I like starting a sermon with a, a problem. I like to acknowledge a problem. Let's look at the problem. I see in our lives, and this starts with me, and I think a lot of us feel it, we bounce. We bounce from being just consistent or just contextual. Let me explain each of these. What does it mean to be just consistent? Put simply, and we'll go to the next slide here, to be consistent is to act in a fair and predictable manner. Let me talk about this for a moment. This sounds really good. 
I act in a fair and predictable manner. That sounds nice. Anybody want to act in a fair and predictable manner? Okay, that, that can be good. So that means I'm the same, and others know what they can expect of me. So when I walk in, they're like, yep, uh, David is going to be David, and he's going to do these things. The challenge is if we do this in a vacuum, you're going to see there's two things I want. I want us to be consistent and contextual. We'll get to that in a moment. If I'm just consistent, what's the negative side of that? I can get really harsh really quickly because I'm consistent, right? I got to stay firm. I got to stand strong. I got to, here I am. This is me. So the challenge, if I'm just consistent, maybe I'm tough and fair and no one really likes me because like there's that really tough and fair and fair and predictable guy, but I don't necessarily want to be around him. He just, he's so self-defined. He's just a jerk. That can be the negative of it. So we need something else. We also need this. We need to be contextual. What does it mean to be contextual? That means I act, I behave, I think in a way that takes my setting and audience into account. So that means being able to read a room, right? It means being able to say, hey, I am me, but I live in the context, in the midst of other people with various understandings of things, with various experiences. And so, in the best way, what does it mean to live contextually? I can relate to others, and I can build bridges. That sounds pretty good. But the problem is, is without consistency, if I'm just contextual, anybody remember middle school? You know what I learned in middle school? Middle school was the first time that I realized I could be 10 different people in 10 different places. Anybody remember that? So, uh, with Mr. Godeke, uh, I could be one thing, and he thought, wow, that David. But then with my friends, the, the guys that I kind of hung around with and, and did whatever and, and talked about whatever, I was a different person. With my parents, a person. At church, a person. Right? And we had all these different things. So middle schoolers are overly contextual. They do this really well. They do really good of, of, with their parents saying like, hey, mom and dad, you know, I'm just, I'm so excited for how you raised me. You're so wonderful. Um, I really appreciate the fact that you love me so much that you set limits in my life. I actually have learned so much from the consequences you put in as a fourth grader. Thank you for taking away my PS4. That was really helpful. It was a growth moment. Then with their friends, what do they say? So my parents don't get me at all. They're the worst. I'm not sure what this is. Can you relate? Oh, you can relate too. See, we all got this together. Then we go to church and we're like, I'm praying for my family and I'm so grateful and I'm praying for my friends too and I want them to know, right? So middle school, can we agree that middle schoolers do the contextual thing really, really, really well? Now, here's something I've learned. You can challenge me on this, but I think I'm right. In our worst and weakest moments, we can go back to a middle school mentality. Anybody agree? In my worst moments, I'm middle school David again, seventh grade, 2001. That was a year. Oh, that was a year. That was quite the year, right? And so the problem with being contextual without consistent or being consistent without contextual is that I either get overly harsh or I get overly chameleon-like. We got to have a balance of the two. I act and behave in a consistent manner, fair and predictably, but contextually, understanding my setting, setting an audience and putting these, these two together. Now, 
something I like doing is I like to sometimes say, these sort of concepts sound a little bit academic. So we like to have a tool. And here's the tool that I want. I'm going to wait for the slide because I want to ask you a question. Do we have anybody who really loves cats in here? Any big cat people? Who, right, put those hands nice and high. I'm not talking to you today, my friends. I'm sorry. I don't get cat people. Never got it. Um, I walked into the monkey house at the zoo yesterday, and it so smelled like a cat litter box. And I remembered there weren't even cats there. And I remembered why I've never had cats. So I apologize. I'm going to repent of that. Um, I'm really sorry. If you're a cat person, I'm not going to use the cat as the illustration because it doesn't work. I, I don't think cats are consistent and contextual. I think they're just odd and I don't get them, okay? I don't get them. Where are my dog people at? Oh, thank you, these are my people. You know, you know what my tool is? Here's, let's go to the next slide. Here's a tool for balance, dogs. Dogs are consistent and dogs are contextual. Okay, who here currently has a dog? Put a hand up, okay. Now put it down. Who here grew up with a dog? Who here ever has put sunglasses on their dog? I, that's not relevant to the conversation, but it's kind of cool. Uh, if I put sunglasses on my dog, she would probably be furious at me. So dogs are consistent, right? No matter the circumstance, the dog is the dog. My dog, Annie, I'm going to talk about a whole bunch of different dogs. I've got a little mutt named Annie. You put her in any situation, and she's always Annie. But they're also contextual. Dogs very, very quickly learn to read context, and they learn who are the people that are safe, who are the people that are threatening, who are the people that are going to give me dinner, who are the little annoying children that live in my house, but I have to be really kind to them because my, the whole deal of me living here is contingent on me being nice to them, even though they're a total pain, right? Dogs can do this. Like, in their, in their really advanced brains, somehow they perfectly balance, and this is why they're man's best friend, Right? because they balance being consistent and being contextual. It really works together. And now, I want to use this as a tool for us, because yes, we want to be like Jesus, absolutely. But sometimes if I say, hey, be more like Jesus today, that's a little abstract. It's true, but it's a little abstract. And so it's helpful to sometimes have these tools where I say, okay, Jesus obviously is always Jesus, is consistent. But he's also contextual. He's able to relate to the different things. We see this in this chapter. And so by taking the dog and saying, okay, sometimes I forget how to be like Jesus, and I even forget who he is. And when I'm sitting with my coworker and my boss comes in and starts yelling at me about something that I messed up on but I don't want to take ownership of, it can be really hard to remember kind of who Jesus is and what he wants me to do in that situation. But if I remember the silly little thing of the dog, and I say, okay, if Jesus is consistent and contextual and so is the dog, maybe in my weakest moments when I go to that middle school mentality, maybe it's hard to be like Jesus. I want to be like Jesus, but maybe it's hard. But I can remember my dog and say, at least I can be like my puppy. Like, come on now, right? So I want to look through this text, and I want to see how Jesus is consistent and contextual. We read it before. But sometimes when we read Scripture, it can be a lot. And I, we like to acknowledge that here at this church. This church really values biblical literacy. We want you to read the Bible a lot, know the Bible, go through the Bible, 
Be honest about the times that, there's, that, we're, not, that we're just like, that was all above me, I'm not sure. And then get to know God's word a little bit more and say, okay, yes, maybe it went over my head, but here's a couple takeaways I have. When you came in, you got a sheet that gives you a whole bunch of keys. So on one side, it's sermon notes. On the other side, it's got three big things about the chapter. If you know nothing about this chapter, we're so glad you're here. Please read those three big things. If you're ready for a verse by verse, if you're like, I really want to know Mark 8, it's going to go verse by verse. And I'm going to kind of do a parallel of that right now. So we start with a crowd gathering. Jesus is once again a sensation. And a crowd gathers because they want to see what happens next. And they're there with Jesus for three days. And they run out of food. Uh Uh-oh. This sounds familiar. This sounds like something happened a couple chapters ago. But Jesus sees the problem, and he cares. We, We see a consistent thing about this. Jesus always will... The, the word that for care here really has a lot to do with compassion. And he has compassion for different reasons. He expresses his care. Sometimes, two chapters ago, we saw that he saw the people were like sheep without a shepherd. So he had compassion for them. It was like herding cats, right? It was just like all these people are all over the place and I care about them. This time it was less about their emotional or spiritual or leadership need, and it was more literally the people ran out of food and he he cared for them. Okay. But then he pulls the knuckleheads. Who are the knuckleheads? The knuckleheads are disciples. They get everything wrong so much. If you sit there in your life and are like, I'm getting Christianity wrong, good, you're in good company. So did all of the disciples. They were the worst. Okay? Knuckleheads, okay? In your Bible, where it says apostles, I want you to put in parentheses, chief knuckleheads. Can you do that for me? No, I'm serious. Because sometimes we look at the people in, in Scripture and we're like, they're so amazing, I can never live up to that standard. No, they denied Jesus, okay? They denied Jesus, they ran away, and one of them betrayed. So, okay, so let's go ahead and call them that they're the knuckleheads that they are. And here's what the knuckleheads ask Jesus. They say, Jesus, what do we do? Now, like not long ago, Jesus had fed 5,000 people men and their families, so probably like 11,000 people. And they're like, Jesus, we don't know what to do. We're so stuck. What does he say? He says, sit down. Give me the food you have. Let's pray. Oh, you got little fish too? Probably sardines? Great. Let's throw those in. We're going to feed the people. It's going to be fine. There's leftovers. Then they leave. And who arrives in the next encounter? The Pharisees. We love the Pharisees. Now, if you're like, I don't know who the Pharisees are, Remember how we got the knuckleheads that we love, but they eventually plant the church? So the knuckleheads, the disciples, they become the apostles. They start the early church. They're why we're all here. The Pharisees are kind of calling them knuckleheads as an insult to knuckleheads. They're just like, hi, Jesus. Here's what they do. They say, Jesus, uh, you obviously are a fraud. You're obviously a crook. And therefore, you need to prove yourself. So we're going to have you do that right now. Thank you. You know what Jesus says to them? Sometimes when I'm frustrated with my students, I don't yell. I pull off my glasses and I go like this. Anybody ever have a moment like this where you're just like, I don't know what's happening right now, but this is so exasperating and exhausting. That's kind of how Jesus says. And he says to you, guys, like, I'm not giving you a sign. We're not doing that. We're not playing these games. Absolutely not. I will not give this generation that kind of a thing bye-bye, and he gets in the boat and leaves. Then we have an opportunity to heal someone. 
And again, Jesus consistently is compassionate, and he says, I love these people, and so he heals this person. Then we have this interesting whole thing where you have, Jesus says, who am I? And the disciples aren't exactly sure. They're knuckleheads. We love them. And they say, well, you might be this, or you might be this, but we're kind of confused. But one person, Peter, says, you're the Messiah. And Jesus is like, so, well, yeah, let's, let's not go ahead and tell people that right now. Let's kind of keep just going through. Because he's consistent because he understands that he has a purpose of his ministry. But then Peter gets angry because he starts talking about that purpose. He starts talking about the actual mission. He says, hey, you know, everything's good right now, but it's not always going to be. We're going to face tough times. And when we face the tough times... They're going to reject me. I'm going to suffer a whole bunch. They're going to kill me. Three days later, I will raise. And this blows up Peter's brain. He's just like, he goes to that middle school mentality. He's like, no, 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 Jesus. That's not happening. That's not helpful. And Jesus, once again, a consistent thing is he doesn't put up with the nonsense. He's not just a doormat. He turns to Peter and says, you have the wrong perspective, my friend, You are looking at it from a human perspective, not from God's. Get behind me, Satan. It sounds a little harsh. Maybe it is a little harsh because Jesus puts up that boundary. Now, the reason I want to go through that is because with Jesus, you know what I can do? I can be consistent in any context. When I learn from Jesus, I can do that. And so we're going to take this chapter, and I'm going to give you three quick things that are going to allow me to be consistent in any context. And you can jot these down before we go there. They're going to be about compassion, boundaries, and a point of view. So if you're, if you're like, you know, that sounds great. I want to be a little less of that middle school mentality, a little less just kind of 10 different people in 10 different rooms, or I want to be a little less just harsh for no reason and arbitrary. Consistent in any context sounds really great. I'd love to learn that from Jesus. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. That'd be awesome. Okay, compassion, boundaries, and point of view. Let's talk about this. Jesus offers compassion when we struggle. In verse 2 of this chapter, he says literally, I feel sorry for these people. They have been here with me for three days, and they have nothing left to eat. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus shows compassion. I mentioned this. Jesus has some defining characteristics. I would say there's really two. There's a lot, but especially two. He's certainly humble. He's certainly here to serve. But he also continues to have a perspective of compassion. He genuinely cares about people. He doesn't have the imperfections and pride that we have. And so he's not sitting there the whole time just like going through all his own inventory of how frustrated and upset he is. And he, instead of just being inside, have you ever in your thought, in your thoughts inside said, you're just sitting there and thinking like, you're talking to someone, you're trying to be kind, but in there you're like, I really don't like this person, they're really annoying, I really wish they weren't here, I would really prefer to be doing anything but this, this is the worst. Jesus didn't do that, because Jesus lived a perfect life. So Jesus, when he's talking to people, he wasn't just like putting on a brave face and pretending to like people, he actually liked people which is helpful. That's a nice practice, by the way. Next time you're sitting there being like, I don't like this person, this is so annoying, think, would Jesus be doing this right now? Hmm, 
Maybe not. Probably not. Okay. But let's go to dogs for a second. Because I said dogs are going to be the tool we're going to do with this. Have you ever been sick in bed and had a dog? What does the dog do? The dog gets it. I don't know how the dog gets it because supposedly dog brains are not very big. But, and they're not very developed. But for some reason, the dog completely gets it. And the dog's there. I had this dog, Sal, growing up, a boxer. And I just remember whether I was sick for real or convincing my parents I was sick so I could stay home and rent movies from Blockbuster. Sorry, Mom and Dad. No matter what, the dog knew I was having a hard time and there was the dog constantly. I think of my wife. I, I was talking to my wife, Laura, and I said, hey, you had dogs growing up. What were your dogs like? And she said, you know my dog, Champ? When middle school was really hard, remember that middle school mentality? Well, when she was an actual middle schooler and middle school was really hard, Champ was just amazing. And I sometimes talk about a time in my life where I dropped out of college, flunked out of music school, and was angry on my parents' couch. What I haven't talked about in that moment is you know who was there the whole time? My dog, Michelle. The whole time. Just like a total bud. Buds for life. Dogs have compassion when they struggle, when we struggle. They just look at it and say, I love that person, I have compassion, I care. And we have that opportunity to do the same thing. You know, when we see the compassion of Jesus, I mentioned that sometimes we can have that narrative in our minds of, this is so annoying, I'm so irritated, I don't want to be here. Throw the narrative away. When people struggle, if you want to be consistent in any context, okay, if I consistently am compassionate, it's appropriate for any context. Because sometimes compassion means a hug. Sometimes a compassion means asking questions. Sometimes compassion means shutting my mouth and walking away and being like, I'm not making this situation worse. I care about this person. And the most helpful thing I can do is to do this. Literally. Compassion allows us to really, really be consistent in any context. Here's my question for you. In your heart today, are you struggling with this? You finding people annoying? Are you going to the middle school mentality, not of the 10 people in 10 different places, but saying, oh, people just really frustrate me. They just really, they grind my gears, man. It's just, I'm not compassionate. Ugh, this is all so frustrating. Jesus shows us to be compassionate. But he's not a doormat. Jesus also offers boundaries when we're defiant. Look at the 12th verse. We're going to jump down a little bit. So the Pharisees come and they're like, Jesus, you're going to give us a sign right now. Thank you. Uh, here it is. And he's, here's what he says. When he heard this, he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why do these people keep demanding a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth. I will not give this generation any such a sign. Jesus constantly has compassion, but he also has boundaries. Now, I'm not going to do a whole talk on boundaries. If, if you're struggling with boundaries, there's a great book called Boundaries that you should go on Amazon and grab. I think we got a couple copies in the office, too. There's a great Christian book about boundaries. I'm not going to go a ton into this for the whole talk. I just want to use this for a moment. Jesus has an identity, a mission, and a method. And he has a reason that he's doing everything he's doing. And so 
You'll see in Mark's gospel, oftentimes we have what's called an interruptive narrative. So this happens where something will happen. For example, a few chapters ago, Jairus' daughter is sick and dying. And so Jesus is on his way to go help out Jairus' daughter. And he's interrupted, but the reason he's interrupted is because he has compassion on a woman in the crowd who has a bleeding and a discharge. And, and charlatans have just taken all her money, and she has nothing, and she's just like sitting there being like, everyone's taking advantage of me, and I don't even know what to do. Jesus, I'll touch your robe. That's going to heal me. It does. And it's interrupted. So he's willing to have his ministry interrupted to show compassion on people. But when, when all the, the people, I was going to call them a meaner name, but all the people in authority, the mucky mucks, right? Those people. When the Pharisees come and they're like, Jesus, you're going to show me a sign. He's like, I'm not playing this game. We're not doing this. We're, I'm here for a mission. I'm going to set up a boundary and say, we're not here to just be bizarre. This isn't happening. Dogs do the same thing. My dad, growing up, had a German shepherd named Teddy. Reverend Cushing, I'm going to put him on the spot without his microphone. Did Teddy do a good job of setting boundaries? He's giving me a thumbs up. Okay. Now, I hear that he was boundaried with most and open with some. My dog, the dog I, we never talk about in our family, I don't know why. Actually, I do know why. Molly. She was a little at Lassa Apso for the first seven or eight years of my life growing up. Before we had Sal, before we had Michelle, before we had Annie and Elsa, we had Molly. Molly was my mother's dog and loved my mother. And you know what she did with everybody else? That wasn't her mission. Her mission wasn't to be everyone else's dog. She was there to be my mother's dog. And she was a little Lassa so she could climb mountains too. Those were her missions. She could climb up and scale rocks and she loved my mother. Everybody else, she just kind of had a boundary, and that wasn't why she was here. So she really fulfilled her mission. She wasn't necessarily nasty to me. She just wasn't a super friendly dog to me. She tolerated me being in the house, didn't bite me, but wasn't necessarily my bud either. When we finally lost her, I was sad, but the connection I had with her was kind of a roommate connection. It was less of her being my dog. She just had the boundary. Now, it was awful on my mother when she died, when Molly died, but for the rest of us, we cared about our mom, and we really felt bad that she lost her dog. But I have a dog now named Annie. I mentioned her. She is a little rescue dog. So she first was rescued from a beach in Puerto Rico, and then she was adopted by a family, and that didn't work out. So she was rescued again. She was adopted again, and now we had her, and Annie has boundaries about everything about her food, about what her expectations are. She's not a mean dog. She's just a very self-defined dog. And so when children were born, we knew this. And we said, hey, Annie's going to have these boundaries. And it's not that she's bad with kids. She's just, that's not really her point. She's not a family dog. We're not going to get rid of her. But for the first about six weeks of my, of my daughter's life, Ruby, we had Annie with my parents, and she slept every night with Ruby's blanket. Because once she understood that Ruby was one of us, she's able to tolerate Ruby and say, okay, I get what we're trying to do here. I'm really Dave and Laura's dog, but I get that to continue to be Dave and Laura's dog, I'm just going to understand and accept the situation as it is, but I'm also going to put up the appropriate boundaries. Now, that brings us back to Jesus. 
Jesus had a very, very clear mission and a very clear purpose. He was not there to perform tricks on command for the Pharisees. He was there to fulfill his mission. We can learn from that. The other night, Ruby is my three-year-old, and she was all excited to get makeup for her Elsa costume. She's going to be Elsa for Trunk or Treat today. This is also confusing because there's a dog named Elsa you've heard, but we're talking about a different Elsa. She's not being the dog. She's being Elsa, let it go, right? Um, I know all the words. Anybody know all the words to let it go because of a little kid in your house? Yeah, right? Okay. Another story for another day. So Ruby and, and her mom are at Alta for the first time. This is a really big deal. Anybody like Alta? Okay, there we go. So they're at Alta. Apparently it's amazing. Um, and so Henry and I are, I'm getting my 18-month-old Henry to bed, and he has a tub, and now he runs ahead of me. I guess I'm really old because I got outrun by an 18-month-old. I didn't know that was a thing. But apparently I'm that old that an 18-month-old is faster than me. Thanks for being old. That's exciting. And so here's what happens. He runs to the dog on her bed, and I'm like, oh, this isn't going to go well. And he tackles her, and I'm like, oh, this isn't going to go well. And you know what she does? Nothing. And, and he's kissing her and hugging her, and it's really cute, except I know my dog. So I'm sitting there being like, I got to get, and so I pick him up, and I'm like, okay, good night. Because what I notice is that she's appropriately boundaried. It wasn't like my dog, when she's really excited, what do dogs do? They lay on their back and they spread themselves and make themselves really vulnerable. So you can rub their belly. She didn't do that. She had boundaries. She understood that the 18-month-old jumped on her and that if she had snapped at him, that wouldn't have been helpful. But she also didn't just say, okay, I'm going to have no boundaries and make myself totally vulnerable because I love this or I'm going to act like I love it. No, she was very, very clear. And in our lives, we need to be clear about that. Just because I have compassion for people doesn't mean that I should have no boundaries. Just because I'm compassion for people doesn't mean I should let people sidetrack everything and take me in a totally different direction. Jesus didn't do that. He loved people and had compassion on them. But also, when the Pharisees were saying, we need a sign, he didn't do it. Because Jesus had the right point of view, and that's what he offers us. And to be consistent in any context, boundaries travel well, and so does the right point of view. Jesus offers the right point of view when we are wrong. Let's look in the 32nd verse. Jump way down, and now Jesus is, is predicting his death and all the things that are going to happen. As he talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him to, aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples and reprimanded Peter. Get away from me, Satan. You are seeing things merely from a human's point of view, not from God's. Now that can sound harsh. That can sound like, wow, I thought the knucklehead Peter was kind of on the team. Why is Jesus calling him Satan? I'm not saying you should call someone Satan. This is not a practice of Jesus I'm suggesting. There's a lot of practices in Mark, that we can take, I don't suggest you turn to people and say, get behind me, Satan. That's not helpful. But what is helpful is to remember the perspective. So look at what he says. He says, you are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Peter has all his insecurities, his, all his frustrations. He's not consistent in any context. He, 
he probably is going to a bit of that middle school mentality and just being like, but, but we're at the top of our glory right now. This is amazing. We just had 4,000 people, and the leaders just came, and they tried to arrest us, and we, we got out of the boat, and it was so great. It was like a movie, and it was so exciting. Why are you talking about the end? But he was wrong because Jesus' mission included being rejected and included being okay with that and having it not totally destroy him. It included suffering. It included being killed, and it included resurrection. And Peter just doesn't get it at all. He just had the wrong perspective because Peter had all these preconceived notions about what Messiah meant. He said, you are the Messiah. But when Peter's talking about a Messiah, he's maybe starting to get it, but more likely he's using a word that means the same thing, but he's probably thinking like, hey, you're the Messiah, you're going to free us physically, politically, socially, militarily. You're going to really bring a different kingdom on earth right now, and he's not fully getting it yet. He's still having the wrong perspective. Throughout the Gospels, we see God's point of view is different than the human point of view. And I want to illustrate this with the dog, because I actually think this one is probably the best. What kind of dog is that? Dalmatian, okay. Dalmatians are famous for being what kind of a dog? A fire dog. Okay. Now, I was doing all sorts of research about why this was, and I was really fascinated about why Dalmatians were fire dogs. Now, of course, with anything, there are multiple theories, so if you've heard something different, it doesn't disprove what I'm going to tell you. It just means you've heard another story. But here is a pretty well-accepted reason why they're fire dogs. In the 19th century, New York City and other cities began to have fire brigades and fire trucks. Were they pulled by cars? They were not. Cars didn't exist. They were pulled by horses. Okay. Anybody ever rode a horse? Anybody ever rode a horse near fire? So horses don't like fire. This is like not a good mix, okay? So you literally have horses that are expected to go to fire. That's a problem. Because what does the horse do? It has the wrong perspective. It has the wrong point of view. And it freaks out. It panics. It's seeing one thing and it's looking at everything from the wrong position. And it's not realizing it just needs to take the fire brigade to the fire and let the humans handle their business. The horse is just like panicking. Oh my goodness, this is the end of the world. So they started using Dalmatians. And one of the ways they would use them is they would have a Dalmatian sit one behind the horse and one in front. And the Dalmatian would literally just sit there, just calmly, having a different perspective. And so instead of the horse panicking, the horse would now have a buddy who was just there calmly letting the humans figure out the situation. And so because of this, Dalmatians became a beloved dog for firefighters and made it so that the firefighter could do all the business and the horse wouldn't have the wrong perspective. Now, in this illustration, we are not the Dalmatian, we are the horse. Peter is not the Dalmatian, he's the horse. We look at things and we panic. It's hard to be consistent in any context when we panic. It's hard to be consistent in any context when we're just like, I don't see it, I'm so upset, this is so alarming, I don't know what to do. Think of Jesus as the Dalmatian. Jesus is set down there right with us, and he's just like, calm down, it's going to be okay. You're looking at this from the wrong perspective. Things are going to work out. 
the fire's going to get put out. The brigade's going to do its thing. You just need to calm down. Think of Jesus like that Dalmatian. That's what he's doing for Peter, and that's what he's doing for us. Because let's be honest, and this is something each of us, it's hard to be consistent in any context, about our faith especially, when we're rebuking Jesus like Peter does, but we all do it. We all get to this point where something happens and we're like, I can't believe it. Now, there's nothing wrong with saying I can't believe it. But it's in saying I can't believe it, but I acknowledge that God is sovereign in my life. I can't believe it, but I acknowledge that God is faithful. I can't believe it, but I acknowledge that there's been the experience of millions of Christians before me who couldn't believe it either, and this isn't unique to me. I'm going to follow Jesus. And that's what our opportunity is. Jesus offers the right point of view when we are wrong because with Jesus, I can be consistent in any context. I don't need to panic. Now, this has a lot to do with compassion. This has a lot to do with boundaries and a lot to do with point of view. But we go back to what we began with. If I'm just harsh and arbitrary and I'm thinking that's faith, it's not. Multiple times we've looked in this series at legalism. Legalism for legalism's sake is not following Jesus. Harsh, arbitrary religion for harsh, arbitrary religion's sake is not following Jesus. Following Jesus is following Jesus. In the same way, it's really good to be compassionate. We care about people. But when we do compassion without boundaries, we get really off track. With Jesus, I can be consistent in any context because remember, Jesus is like that Dalmatian. He's providing, he is set down at that fire and I don't have to freak out. I can say, wow, okay, I've got Jesus with me. It's going to turn out okay. I can be faithful now. And so here's my question. We've started a practice where we invited, as, as the fifth chapter of James shows us, we've started inviting the elders of the church down forward. So I'm going to invite the elders of the church down forward. If you are dealing with any of these issues today, I want to invite you to come pray with us during this last song. So I'll invite the elders. So are you struggling with feelings of being a phony? Are you feeling like you're at a middle school mentality? Are you feeling like you're 10 different people in 10 different places? Are you feeling like there's a Dalmatian and you're a horse out of fire and you simply want the Dalmatian to be your buddy and to be calm when you're not? If you're in any of those positions, I invite you, we want you to come forward. We're going to sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness, remembering that God is faithful. And I want to invite you forward. And it can be terrifying, I'm going to be honest, to get up and say, I'm acknowledging that I need more Jesus in my life. I'm acknowledging I need more consistency. I'm acknowledging I don't need to be a phony anymore. And I want Christ to partner with me. It can be scary, but I invite you, do the brave thing. Let's pray together because we know that with Jesus, we can be consistent in any context.